Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the Massacre of Wild Goose Lodge. This episode is the chilling account of a massacre that shocked pre-famine Ireland. I don't want to give any details away, so I'm going to get straight into this pretty remarkable story just after a few quick announcements. So I've mentioned on previous occasions that I've been working on a documentary with Jamie Goldrick and it's finally ready and is going to be posted on my Patreon page for show patrons in the next few days. Making the documentary has been an amazing experience and it's been funded exclusively by listeners like you who have become patrons. Indeed, the entire Famine series and this podcast are only possible through the support of patrons of the show and I am eternally grateful for their support. If you want to join them and become a patron, you get early access to all shows, episode guides, extra podcasts. The next show, for example, will be out in about a week's time and is exclusively available for patrons only. And you'll also get exclusive access to my documentary. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Patrons also get a shout out. And this week I want to thank Marty Meehan, Donna Shepherd, Sean Meehan, Conor O'Reilly, Keen Ashworth, Ray O'Connor, Rob N, The History Unplugged podcast. You can find those guys in iTunes, Jeff Angevin, Mark O'Dwyer and Kathleen Lonergan. Thanks a million for your support, guys. It really means a lot. And now, finally, before we get into the podcast itself, I want to acknowledge one book in particular that I used in the research for this, which is an excellent account of the following events. That's The Murders of Wild Goose Lodge by Terence Dooley. William Carlton is a somewhat forgotten figure in Ireland today. However, he was without question one of the greatest Irish writers of the mid-19th century, W.B. Yeats himself described him as the greatest novelist of Ireland. While Carlton wrote fictional accounts of rural life, 
It was an actual event that took place in 1817 that was one of the darkest things he ever wrote about. In 1817, Carlton was living in County Louth, working as a tutor. To while away the hours, he used to walk through the Louth countryside and it was during one of these rambles he came across the following scene. One day, I went on, guided by the turnings of the way, until I reached a crossroads in a small village where I perceived a number of soldiers standing and chatting to each other and passing their time as best they could. I looked on before me when I had reached this queer little place and perceived something like a tar sack dangling from a high beam of wood or rather from the arm which projected from it. There was a slight but agreeable breeze. The sack kept gently swinging backward and forward in obedience to the wind and I could perceive long ropes of slime shining in the light and dangling from the bottom. I was very much astonished and could form no conjecture as to the nature of this spectacle. So, with a viewing ascertaining what it was, I applied to the soldiers who were near me. Pray, said I, what is the nature or meaning of that object which I see up on the road there? Why, said one of them, the sergeant, is it possible you don't know? I certainly do not, I replied, nor can I guess what it means. Well, sir, he said, that object is a gibbet, and what you see swinging from it in the pitch sack is the body of the murderer, named Devan. Paddy Devan swings there, and it's just where he ought to swing. Now that account wasn't pulled from the darkest recesses of William Carleton's disturbed mind. This happened, however it only touches on the full story of what this podcast is focusing on, the massacre of Wild Goose Lodge. To understand how a man would end up being treated in what seems like a positively medieval fashion in Ireland nearly 200 years ago, we need to delve deep into society at the time to try and understand the sheer horror and terror that was gripping society in Louth at the time. And a good place to start is sunset. While sunset can be spectacular and the most relaxing part of the day, it is, or was at least, followed by the most unsettling aspect, nighttime. So next I want to try and encapsulate the terrors that night brought with it in the early 19th century. as black as night is slowly losing its meaning. In the 21st century most people from the western world at least live in cities where night is no longer black but instead glows an orange hue from street lights. Even if you live in a rural area the night sky is adulterated with the lights from nearby towns and cities glowing on the distant horizon. However true and total darkness when the sun goes down is something to behold. About a decade ago, I lived in a very remote corner of northwestern Mayo. The nearest large town was about 50 miles distant. On cloudy nights, total and complete darkness enveloped the valley I lived in, in a way which I experienced only on few occasions previously. The sensation is strange. What can feel like an endless void is only broken by the appearance of a lonely car winding its way over a hill on the horizon a few miles away. This void, though, is also disconcerting. A strange noise in the dead of night leads the mind to wander, particularly when you live in a remote place. The sound, whatever it is, is not passing traffic. There never is any. If it is a person, who could it be? Why are they calling after dark? What do they want? Now, where I was living, there was nothing to fear but my own imagination. But if you turn back the clock two centuries, things in Ireland were very different. Darkness brought with it grave dangers, things to fear. 
A distant howl of a dog through the darkness gave pause for thought. Were they warning of approaching danger? The shadows cast by darkness were hiding places for people who did not want to be seen doing things that for one reason or another they wanted to keep secret. When these secrets were unveiled, they would lead directly to William Carleton's gruesome account which the show opened with. It began in the hinterland of the town of Ardee in County Louth. In the early 19th century, the locals in and around Ardee had good reason to fear the dark and what moved in its shadows. These were troubled times. Economic recession and uncertainty about the future were taking a toll on society. Unrest was bubbling away beneath the surface as the poor were struggling to survive. Across the country they banded into what were known as secret societies, often called ribbon men. These organisations varied from place to place, but in times of recession they defended the poor against what they saw as the excesses of richer tenant farmers. While it's easy to empathise with their motives, their tactics were frequently chilling. A person who for one reason or another had fallen foul of a local secret society might initially be warned with a death threat, which often employed gruesome imagery. One such threat was issued in Foxford and County Mayo and warned an individual that, and I quote, his flesh would pay for all. To ignore these warnings was perilous. Secret societies had few qualms in following through on these death threats if needs be. A particularly brutal killing was that of John Wraith, a magistrate who lived outside R.D. in County Louth. As he dined with two friends in his home, what one contemporary newspaper called a hellish miscreant fired a blunderbuss at Wraith through a window, blowing away the upper part of his head. It was in this volatile society that a man called Edward Lynch lived with his extended family at a house called Wild Goose Lodge in western County Louth. The household consisted of around eight people, including three relatives, they being Lynch's son Michael, his pregnant daughter Bridget and her husband Thomas Rooney. There was also at least three servants, Anne Cassidy, Bridget Richards and James Rispin. While Lynch rented lands himself, he was comfortable if not wealthy. The presence of three servants speaks to this. That said, the word lodge was a grandiose title for the Lynch family home. The only surviving drawing of the lodge, which is included in the episode guide on Patreon, shows a modest house, certainly by 21st century standards. It was built from stone with a thatch roof. However, it was more substantial than most houses of the time, which is attested to by the presence of two chimneys. Beside the house was a barn, which gave the overall complex an L-shape recorded on early 19th century maps. By 1816, the Lynch family were at risk from attack by local secret societies. As wealthier farmers, they were at odds with the poor, who by and large formed the ranks of these secret societies, and the Lynches didn't have too far to look to see the risks they faced. A farmer called Matthew Daly, who lived not too far away outside R.D., was visited by a secret society one night early in 1816. His house was surrounded by 100 men who accused him of taking lands from poor folk, He was lucky though. He was dragged outside, his guns were stolen, but he escaped with his life. For the Lynches, they experienced their first taste of such an attack on April 10th, 1816, which proved a fateful night for all involved. On the evening in question, April 10th, 1816, Wild Goose Lodge was quiet. Only Edward Lynch, his son-in-law Thomas Rooney and one of the servants, James Rispin, were at home. Thankfully, 
Bridget, his heavily pregnant daughter, and the others were not there. With Easter approaching the following Sunday, the rest of the household may have been attending the numerous religious services that took place during what is known as Holy Week in Ireland. How the attack began, though, is unclear. Maybe Lynch and the other two in the house became aware something was awry with the barking of dogs. Perhaps it was the disquieting presence of footsteps outside. Whatever the case, once the attackers reached the lodge, they did not keep their presence a secret as they began to beat down the door, which gave way quickly. Once inside, they demanded weapons. Edward Lynch claimed he had none, and the attackers responded by smashing up the house. This led to a serious fracas between Lynch, his son-in-law Thomas Rooney, and the attackers. Armed with a pitchfork, Lynch eventually succeeded in driving them back, empty-handed. While he could rest easy that night, the victory Lynch had secured was soured by the knowledge that the secret society would surely come back, if anything just to prove a point to Edward Lynch. However, what Lynch did in the following days would make everything far, far worse. Whether blinded by a desire for revenge or obstinacy, or he was underestimating the members of the secret society, he went to the authorities and not only reported the attack, but he, along with his son-in-law Rooney and the servant Rispin, said they could also identify three individuals who were involved. Things escalated rapidly, and from there Lynch crossed the point of no return. The three men they accused, Michael Tiernan, Patrick Stanley and Philip Conlon, were arrested and hauled before a court in the summer of 1816. On the testimony of Thomas Rooney and James Rispin, they were found guilty and sentenced to death. The three were executed shortly afterwards in Dundalk Jail. Now it's hard to explain the implication of what Lynch and the others had done by testifying. In short, it made them informers, a figure hated by many in Irish society in the 19th century. The British politician George Cornwall Lewis accurately described how many viewed informers when he said, There is no name of more ominous sound in Ireland than that of informer. A man who has given information or evidence is doomed to certain death. If he attempted to return from the assizes to his house, he would be hunted through the country like a mad dog. Every hand would be raised against him. A man who has given evidence to convict may make ready his coffin. Indeed, Rooney could not return home immediately and in the aftermath of the trial, he was imprisoned for his own safety. When he did return to Wild Goose Lodge, those in the house were now armed for their own safety. They knew, indeed everyone knew, another attack was coming. It was only a matter of time. The secret society had to respond. From their perspective, it would be risky not to. Others might well start informing on their activities if they didn't punish those who did. Each night, the terror that enveloped the Lynch household must have been relentless for everyone inside. This was not just a fear of the dark. There was a very real threat out there. Somewhere, men were sitting around planning revenge and the Lynches had no control over when or how this would happen. The howl of the wind or a lonely barking dog must have had the Lynches reaching for their weapons. All they could do was wait and hope when the retribution came, it would be measured However, as the tensions were building in County Louth, an event that had taken place the previous year in a far-flung corner of the globe would magnify the reaction of the secret society. Retribution would not be measured after what was called the year without summer. The weather in the Northern Hemisphere in 1816 was one of the strangest ever recorded. It would be known to history as 
the year without summer in the English-speaking world because there was essentially no summer that year. The weather was unusually cold and wet. Hard frosts and snow were recorded in June and July. If this wasn't unsettling enough, snow in Hungary was the colour of flesh. In Italy it was red, while in Maryland in the USA it was blue. Few, if any, understood what was happening, but people were actually living through a volcanic winter. Unbeknownst to most in Europe, over a year earlier, in April 1815, Mount Tambora, a volcano in Indonesia, exploded in one of the most violent eruptions in recorded history, spewing volcanic ash into the sky. Over the following year, this ash in the atmosphere spread across the globe, blocking out the sun, which led to these bizarre conditions. While Ireland would escape red snow, the unusually heavy rainfall of the year pushed people to the edge of survival as the harvests failed. In Loud, this exacerbated the tension between larger tenant farmers like the Lynches and the local secret societies who knew hard times were coming and the poor were going to suffer. This framed the vengeance the local secret society exacted on the Lynch family of Wild Goose Lodge. But before we look at what transpired, I want to take a quick break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. The tensions focusing on the Lynch family came to a head on the night of the 29th to the 30th of October 1816. The key figure in organising retribution was a pretty unusual suspect. His name was Patrick Devan, the sacristan of a nearby Catholic church at Stonetown, a few kilometres to the southwest of Wild Goose Lodge. In his twenties, Devan was by comparison a well-educated man for the time and was a teacher in the area, plying his trade in what were known as hedge schools, informal schools that had emerged after Catholic schools had been banned in the 18th century. Devan had a unique set of talents which allowed him to emerge as a central figure in the local secret society. He could write, which allowed him to pen threatening letters, which were an important tool in any secret society. He was also something of a natural leader, a powerful speaker and a good organiser. Now, by October 1816, Devan and others in the local secret society were presumably well aware the coming months were going to see increased tension in western Louth. The disastrous harvest caused by the volcanic winter meant the poor were going to go hungry and face hardships. They would have to fight their corner. In Devan's view, at least, this meant that the secret society would need to be feared to be effective, and part of this was settling old scores against those who had crossed them. Surely top of that list was Edward Lynch and his family in Wild Goose Lodge. No one had challenged the secret society more than Lynch. He had fought off one attack, then reported them to the authorities, and if this wasn't enough, 
Lynch's son-in-law, Thomas Rooney, and servant, James Rispin, had testified in court which secured the executions of three people. Unsurprisingly then, in late 1816, Devan made his push for retribution. The historian Terence Dooley has pointed out that the timing of late October was the traditional end of the agricultural year when rents were paid and final crops were brought in. While landlords would settle financial accounts with tenants, the secret society may have felt the time had come for them to settle old scores. Lynch had a debt of sorts to pay. However, in Devan's ledger, only life would pay for the lives lost on the gallows. The course of action they took against Lynch and his family was extreme, to say the least. Through October, preparations across several parishes were made. It was a pretty complex operation, given there was going to be around 100 people involved. On the night of the 29th, they gathered at several locations across southwestern Louth and prepared to make their way to Wild Goose Lodge. In what would later prove the ideal setting for fiction writers like William Carlton, Devan gathered his local group at Stonetown Chapel. Much was made of the choice of a church as a meeting point and writers like Carlton conjured up images of a messianic divan haranguing a crowd from the altar. It also fed into the idea that the retribution was motivated, in part at least, by sectarianism. The reality was, however, the church was just a large indoor space that divan as sacristan had access to. There was also no sectarian motive behind the tensions swirling around the inhabitants of Wild Goose Lodge. The Lynch family were Catholics, as were their attackers. However, this did not in any way lighten the blow that was about to fall on the lynches. It would be truly horrific. As the various groups made their way towards Wild Goose Lodge, they began to drink whiskey, presumably in an effort to steal themselves. It was unquestionable that they were expecting physical confrontation, given they were also armed. But some probably were unaware of what exactly they were about to participate in, and they would need every drop of alcohol given what lay ahead. When they converged around Wild Goose Lodge, there was around a 100 men in total, and with the alcohol taking effect, it was impossible for such a large crowd to remain silent. Meanwhile, inside Wild Goose Lodge, the entire household was present on this night. So this included Edward Lynch, his son Michael, his daughter Bridget, and her husband Thomas Rooney. And since the first raid, Bridget had given birth to a baby boy who was five months old. There was also three servants in the house, Anne Cassidy, Bridget Richards and James Rispin. They were all undoubtedly gripped by fear now when they heard the approach of the mob gathering near the house. The echoes of cries through the night and the tumult made by the scores of men making their way to the lodge can only have been terrifying. However, the lynches did not flee the house. Perhaps they favoured their chances behind the sturdy stone walls of their home rather than running through fields in the dark. They say that anticipation of pain is often worse than what eventually transpires. This wasn't the case, however, at Wild Goose Lodge. Those inside the building could never, in their worst nightmares, have imagined what was about to play out. As they arrived at Wild Goose Lodge, Devan and the assembled crowd fanned out around the building, sealing off any hope of escape. For those inside, watching shadows move through the darkness must have made their blood run cold. They frantically prepared for an imminent assault, bolting the doors and arming themselves with weapons. When one of the attackers approached the door, a shot rang out from inside the house and struck him. Now whether this led to an intensification of the attack or whether it had been planned all along is unknown, but soon Wild Goose Lodge had been set alight, something easily done because the roof was made of thatch 
which burns very easily. This now changed the dynamic. The family could no longer try and hoard out inside the house. It was burning down around them. However, for Edward Lynch, his son-in-law Thomas Rooney and James Rispin, they surely knew that once they set foot outside, they were almost certainly going to die. They were informers who had testified against the secret society. But they did have other concerns, initially at least. For example, Rooney's wife, his five-month-old son, along with four others in the house who hadn't testified in court or been present on the night of the first attack, were also now in this burning building. Surely they could escape. What was desperation to flee though soon turned to horror when they tried to leave the building and it became clear that Devan's plan was not to try and force those inside the house to leave. Instead, he had set the fire to kill all the inhabitants by burning them alive. He was, after all, well aware of the dangers of allowing a witness escape. They were there to take vengeance precisely because witnesses had been able to testify from the previous attack, which resulted in the hanging of three men. However, there was a five-month-old baby present as well. That baby posed no threat to anyone, given it clearly couldn't testify. Thomas Rooney supposedly begged that they would allow his innocent son escape the flames. However, Devan called back, These are not old times. This night is your doom. This has been taken to mean that Rooney and Devan knew each other and that perhaps at some stage Rooney might even have been a member of the secret society. Whatever the case, Devan was clearly not going to show any mercy. For the rest of those inside, these words must have made their blood run cold. If a five-month-old child wasn't going to be allowed out, no one was. A servant pleaded to be let out as well when one of the attackers said to her, You did not take the warning in time, inferring she must have been warned to leave the service of the Lynch family. Outside, Patrick Devan was utterly ruthless. While some present wanted to allow the innocent to escape, he insisted the nits should burn as well as the lice. That said, he was by no means alone in his ruthlessness. As the fire slowly consumed the building, a local blacksmith stepped forward and broke down the door, not to save those inside but instead he threw in some materials to help the house burn. By some accounts, Wild Goose Lodge was alight for two hours until finally the roof collapsed in, which was greeted by cheers from the assembled crowd. Satisfied all inside were dead, the group then began to disperse, but not before they were warned that any who spoke of what had taken place that night would suffer a similar fate. However, surely those present must have known that they had committed an attack that was going to be greeted with revulsion by many in their own community and across Ireland. This was no ordinary secret society murder. Many would have felt that those who had testified in the court case arising from the first attack had brought Devan's vengeance on themselves. But the murder of the others, including a five-month-old child, was way beyond what could be considered as settling all scores. Further to this, it was going to be hard to keep it a secret. There had been a hundred people present. They were returning to homes, having been absent all night, smelling strongly of smoke given the house had been ablaze. This meant that their wives and family members, which would number in the hundreds, would have had suspicions that they had been present at the massacre. That said, initially at least, the authorities were clueless. In what was a lurch in the dark, they arrested the relatives of Michael Tiernan, one of the men executed for the first raid on Wild Goose Lodge. However, this was purely based on the idea that they had carried out the attack in vengeance. These arrests brought them no closer to finding out what exactly happened or perhaps, more importantly, who had perpetrated it. 
Weeks passed with no major developments. A fund of £1,300 was raised for information and that's an extraordinary amount of money for the time. It would set someone up for life but it still didn't produce results. Everyone in Loud knew that the person who claimed that reward wouldn't live long enough to enjoy it. It would be a very short life for anyone who testified in court. That said, it does seem the police themselves were actually slowly beginning to piece together some sense of what had happened on the night in question through a network of their own informers. However, these people were totally unwilling to testify, so they couldn't move against the secret society in terms of developing a court case. However, in March 1817, things began to change. It wasn't the money that worked, but instead a completely unexpected turn of events. A few months after the events of Wild Goose Lodge, the home of another farmer, John Sillery, had been attacked. On that occasion, a servant was killed, and in the aftermath, a man called Patrick Murphy was tried, convicted and sentenced to death for his role in the murder. Facing the noose, Murphy claimed he had been present at Wild Goose Lodge on the night of the attack. Although it's very unlikely that Murphy was actually there, he was willing to testify and say he was in return for his life. As I mentioned earlier, the police by this point had picked up enough bits and pieces of information so they did have a fair idea of what happened, so they were able to school him in their version of events at least. Murphy's so-called confession would lead to several arrests, which triggered a chain of further arrests. Eventually the police had a handful of people who claimed to have been present on the night or indeed were present on the night and were willing to take the stand. The secret society was no longer secret and it was starting to unravel. Devan himself however evaded arrest. He undoubtedly knew that once arrests began it would not take the police long to arrive at his door and he left loud eventually making his way to Dublin. Although he was one of the most wanted men in Ireland He just changed his name and was able to work on the customs house docks, cloaked by the anonymity offered by the city. This was a time before CCTV, photography, DNA or even accurate drawings, so Devan was able to stay off the radar. That was until he made the fatal error of writing home. Literacy was still relatively limited in the early 19th century and his handwriting was recognised by a local postmaster and eventually the authorities were able to track Devan to a house on Bridgefoot Street in Dublin. Hauled back, he was tried in Dundalk, and with the testimony of several people, he was revealed as the mastermind and central figure in the attack. He was found guilty, but the sentence was barbaric. Patrick Devan was not only to be hanged in the ruins of Wild Goose Lodge, but his body was then to be covered in pitch. This would preserve it, so it could be put on display as a warning to others. The execution of Patrick Devan took place on July 23rd, 1816, with several thousand people gathering to see him die. He was allowed to pray in the ruins of the lodge before being strung up from a beam suspended between the two chimneys which were still standing. For Devan, his return to Wild Goose Lodge under these circumstances was in many ways inevitable, I think. You have to wonder how he thought he was ever going to get away with this attack. Like, did he really think that the hundred men assembled there were going to be able to keep that secret? Ultimately, his death seems to have been agonising. He would struggle at the end of a rope for a considerable amount of time. However, further ignominy awaited Patrick Devan when the second part of his sentence was carried out. As I said, he was covered in pitch and hung for months on end as a warning to others. It was Patrick Devan's body that William Carlton was describing in that account I read at the start of the show. While Devan was the most well-known 
In total, 18 men were executed for their role in the massacre, some of whom were completely innocent. Several of their corpses were displayed on gibbets, like Devan's, but he was the one who would go on to embody the attack of Wild Goose Lodge and the complex emotions it evoked in wider society. While most reviled the action and the secret society operating in the area were feared, there's no doubt that they were respected by some in the community. On this note, I'm going to leave the final words in this story to William Carlton, who pointed out that even after it was revealed that Devan was responsible for the massacre of Wild Goose Lodge, including the murder of a five-month-old child, Manny still empathised with him. Carlton later wrote, His mother could neither go in or come out of her cabin without seeing his body swinging from that gibbet. Her usual exclamation on looking at him was, God be good to the soul of my poor martyr. The peasantry too frequently exclaimed on seeing him, poor Paddy. That brings an end to the story of the massacre of Wild Goose Lodge. Now the next exclusive patrons podcast out in the coming week or so is going to follow up on this theme by looking at more secret society murders and attacks in pre-famine Ireland because Wild Goose Lodge is just one of the most notorious of several around this time which are deeply disturbing. And while these secret societies can sometimes be portrayed almost like Robin Hood type figures, their extreme brutality asks complex questions about the morals of our ancestors and indeed wider society. I'm looking forward to making this patrons podcast because it'll give space to expand on some thoughts I have around this. You can get that by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. The next show in the main series will be a return to the Great Famine where we'll pick up the story in 1848. Until next time, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 